memorize. It flows through us. It comes to us when we need it. We want to live it, obey it. Just help us understand it this morning. Help us understand what many have called the most famous verse in the entire Bible. Help us go deeper into it and marvel at it all over again. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, my question for Eric is this, because this is always interesting to me. So, Monday, I, I started studying for Joseph and, and Mary, and I was going to do a message on that. And then, by the end of Monday, I had this, this great feeling that I'd probably actually just studied for, um, the, the Shanky wedding was yesterday. Greg and Mary Jo Shanky got married, right? And um, I had this feeling that I was studying Mary and Joseph, and really that was probably just for their wedding. And there was something else entirely for us this morning. And uh, so, so I shifted gears, and on Tuesday I studied John 3.16. Because uh, I was thinking about how Mary and Joseph were part of God's plan to bring the gift of Jesus into the world. Now, I heard Eric this morning. So, so in other words, the, the, um, we have a sermon schedule, and I usually stick to whatever text I pick for that schedule. But, but this week I kind of threw it out and I said, I'm doing, doing John 3.16 instead. Now, Eric didn't know that. I didn't tell him that. Did you know that, Eric? You didn't know that. So Eric started the service of John 3.16. You heard him read it, right? Or he quoted it probably. You quoted it. Um, I didn't tell him I was preaching John 3.16. It should have been a surprise. But he said, John, I just love that. I love that. I have no idea other than God just kind of orchestrates this. And, and I don't know. I don't know. You did it this morning? You did that this morning. All right. That's, I love that. So, um, I don't, it doesn't mean it's going to be a good sermon, but you know, it started really well, didn't it? Okay. All right. So, um, yes, John 3.16. Uh, I picked it because I believe the Holy Spirit led me to do that, but um, as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, Mary and Joseph... They were chosen to bring God's gift into the world. As difficult as that was, and, and I'd forgotten how that video went too, and I thought they were going to have a conversation after she said that, you know. And then I remember just, it just the screen goes blank, and you're like, you're just left with that. Oh, what did Joseph think? Because the Christmas story never tells us, you know, exactly how that all played out. Like, who told Joseph? We don't know. He just found out. Uh, so, I, we don't, you know, there's a little bit of artistic license there, but... But we do know that God trusted this amazing couple to raise the Messiah. And, and, and Joseph at that point had no idea what an amazing task he had just been given. So I want to talk about that amazing gift. John 3.16, people love it. It's a lot of people's favorite verse. I have a few images of John 3.16 I'd like to show you to show how crazy we are about this verse. Uh, the first one, it's graffiti, Right? John 3.16, graffiti. Uh, next, it's on the In-N-Out Burger cup. I don't like In-N-Out Burger, but that's a good cup. Just, I just needed to say that. You know, there it is. Um, it's, it's, at, it's at baseball games. People got the sign and they're holding it. It's, uh, what else is it? It's a tattoo. It's a tattoo. Don't get any ideas, kids. It's Tim Tebow, John 3.16. And then, and then there was that story that circulated that he, uh, he was told he couldn't do that anymore. 
And then um, whatever game he was, whatever game he was playing, he uh, he threw for 316 yards. So they were saying, "Aha!" Yeah, I, I don't know, but that's that's how the story goes. Okay. Um, then there's Yoda. God loved the world so God did that His only Son He gave. If you believe in Him, you do live forever. You shall and perish. Sorry for the spelling. You shall not. I couldn't help myself. It's it's Star Wars weekend, so all right. All right, all right. So, um, just just curious. It does. You don't have to. You don't have to have this as your. Anybody have this as their favorite verse? They're kind of like this is this is the one. Eh, no, nobody. All right. What's wrong with you? All right. Well, you will after this. All right. So, um, I've told many of this before, but when I was when I was at Moody uh, in my second year of Greek. Uh, studying the language of the New Testament, uh, I had the privilege, and I do believe it was the privilege, of being able to study one verse in Greek a night. And that was an assignment, so I was graded on how well I studied it. And so we, we were going through First Timothy, and you just go verse by verse by verse by verse, and you just do a verse a night. And you turned in the next day when you got to class, and, and they would grade you on it. And uh, one verse... There was like, it was like a 10-step Greek interpretation process. 10 steps. And uh, it would probably take at least two hours, sometimes three, each verse. Now, I wish I could just create time so I could do that, you know, like every day, but I don't do it. Uh, this verse I did it for, and so I'm a little rusty, but um, I, I always look at the text in Greek. I always, I always look at that, but I don't do my 10-step process because it's so lengthy and if you're studying five verses that's like 20 hours you know 15 20 hours and that, that's a long time um so but i did do that for john three sixteen, and i want to just share it uh from the perspective of of greek okay and, and see if i can bring out some some of the nuances there in that verse now you might as well turn to john three i know you know the verse but i want you to see the context go to john chapter three In John 3, Nicodemus is uh, a Pharisee visiting Jesus under the cover of darkness, the chicken. And uh, he's talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, uh, you've got to be born again. Or, or another Greek version of that is you have to be born from above. I think some translations might even say, born from above. And Nicodemus does not understand that. He's a teacher, but he doesn't get what Jesus is saying how can a man be born again? You go in your mother's womb again? How does that work? But, but the, beauty, the beautiful part of being born again, which evangelicals have taken that phrase and really run with it as far as describing what God does when you become a Christian, I think the idea is you want to fix sinful? You can't fix sinful. You need a total rebirth to fix what's wrong with us. You can't just put a Band-Aid on it. You need an entire new birth which God is going to do in Jesus Christ. So he's talking about that. Nicodemus doesn't understand it. Verse 9 in chapter 3, he says, How can this be? And Jesus says, You're Israel's teacher. You don't understand these things? Um, And then in verse 13, if you look at that, Jesus says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, the actual word there is no one has ascended. Now, that's a tricky verse because you might read it and go, Well, where do people go when they die? Don't they go to heaven? What about Elijah who went to heaven in the flaming chariot? What's up with that? You know, but, but I think Jesus' point is, 
I have the authority to tell you these things. I'm Jesus. I have the authority. And nobody can just ascend to heaven but me. God brings you to heaven. You don't just get to go there. You know, when you die, you don't have power over your soul. God does that. But the Son of Man, Jesus, has the power to ascend and descend on His own. Because He's God. I think that's the point there. He's saying, I have incredible authority to tell you these things. So pay attention. And then, and then Jesus gives uh, an example of what He's talking about in verse 14 because Nicodemus would be familiar with this story. Just as Moses, this is verse 14, lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. So the idea here is, some of you are familiar with that story in the book of Numbers, where the Israelites are in the wilderness, and Moses is leading them, and they're complaining as normal. They're complaining never gets them anywhere, but but on this day, they're bitten by snakes, and and they're going to die. And so... Uh, Moses puts this bronze serpent onto this this pole and lifts it up. And and if you look at the serpent that Moses lifts up, you will be healed. You will live. And Jesus says, in the same way, everyone that believes in Him may have eternal life as He is lifted up. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, And then you get the famous verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I I translated it in Greek to bring out some of the nuances of the verse. Um, And and I want to show you that. And it's in your notes as well. For God loved the world in this way, that He gave His Son, His only one, in order that everyone who believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I want to explain this as we go, because you'll notice a couple different things. I took out the word so, and I put in the word in this way, and I did that for a reason. And then he gave his son, and I didn't say only begotten, I said his only one, and I did that for a reason too. So, we'll get there in just a second. So, let's say this. Uh, Today is Advent week four. It's a candle of love. So, I just want to talk about God's love. So, I know John 3.16, I could say a lot of things about it. I'm going to limit myself to talking about God's love. That's the theme of the Sunday. So number one, God's love. The primary way God loves the world is the giving of His Son, His only one. The primary way God loves the world is the giving of His Son, the only one. So, okay, I took out the word so, for God so loved. And here's the reason I did that. Because... The word so is, I mean, it's a beautiful way to talk, and I think that comes out of King James Version, I think, has it that way. But the Greek of it, it, it's a different kind of so. It's a so that means in this way or thus. It's not the so, it's not about how big God's love is, it's describing God's love. You get what I'm saying? So when when we read, for God so loved, the world, we think he so loved the world. What he means to say is God loved the world in this way. In what way did God love the world? In this way. So that. Okay, it's it's that kind of feeling of so. So I changed that to in this way. It's actually the first word in John three sixteen. The first word is 
so, or, or in this way. So what Jesus is saying is, you look at verse uh, 15, and again, 15 says, or 14 and 15, Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man has to be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. And then he says, God loved the world in this way. How did God love the world? He gave His Son. That's how He loved the world. It's a very specific way He loved the world, by giving His Son. Now, to go back to the lifted up thing, that there is a double meaning of lifted up, and I'm not going to take you to all those passages, but um, I, I know you're going to, it's going to be obvious in a second here. Um, when Jesus talks about being lifted up, I think there's two things going on here. He talked about ascending and descending, and, and, and probably the most plain meaning is, you see in John 8:28 and 12:32, it's the idea that Jesus is going to give his life. They're going to lift him up on a cross. And anyone who looks to the cross for forgiveness is saved. Just like when people looked at the the bronze serpent, they would be healed. It's like that. Look at the cross and you'll be forgiven of your sins. Accept that. But there's a double meaning here. And I think that's when Jesus says, ascend, only I can ascend to heaven. Jesus is lifted up in this way. He ascended to heaven to be exalted by God. He was raised from the dead. He went into the grave and he came up and was raised. So when Jesus says lifted up, and Acts brings this out really beautifully, by the way. You can look at that a different time, but, but it's, it's about the exaltation of Christ. He was lifted up in glory. Okay, So I think there's two things going on there with the bronze serpent and, and, and lifted up. Um, part C, if you want to get that up there, Jim. Um, the other thing about this is when we say God sent his son, his only one, it's just the way the verse reads. It reads like that, and English smooths it out. He gave his only begotten son. He gave his only son. But the way it reads in the verse is God gave his son, and then the adjective comes after. His only one. And The reason the writer does that, the reason the speaker does that, is to emphasize something. Putting the adjective after. God gave His Son His only one. That's the force of it. That's why I translate it that way. So you're supposed to read this and go, God's given so many good things to us. Life, breath, food, children, shelter, strength, healing. I mean, So many things He's done for us, but He gave His only Son. That's what you're supposed to read it and go, He gave the best thing ever. Part D. Um, Is there a D? Hopefully there's a D. Yeah, so so throughout the Scripture, and and if you want to look at John 3.35, since it's in this this same chapter, um, it says, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. So, Throughout the Bible, and in these verses you have here, um, you see that the, the, the love of the Father for the Son is highlighted throughout Scripture. God loves His Son. He loves His Son. And you're supposed to feel that. He's given Him glory. The Father loved raising Jesus from the dead and exalting Him and sitting Him at His right side. God loves doing that because in the Trinity there's amazing love. You have no idea what the love is like in the Trinity, but it is incredible. And so you think, this being, God, who loves His Son so 
much, said, I'll give him up because I also love the world. I also love the world. And I'm going to give the world the best thing I have, my son. And don't take that for granted. I'm giving my son. I mean, that, that's the way it reads. There's only one. There's nobody like Jesus. There's no gift like him. And he's given it to you. That's why you look at, and I'll read this or you can turn there. It's up to you. Romans 8.32. Paul makes a big deal about this in Romans 8.32. I bet you'll be familiar with this verse when I read it. Um, How about we'll start in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. He didn't spare his own son. He didn't have to send his son to die, but he didn't spare him. He sent him, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I love that. I love it. You know what he's saying? If God gave you the best thing ever, his son, why would you not think he's going to give you everything else? He's already given you the best. Anything God gives you after Jesus is second best, third best, fourth best, fifth best. He gave you the best. Won't He give you everything else He's promised? He's already given you a son. You can't beat that. I love that. And I hope Romans 8.32 just like comes alive for you. Um, how did God love the world? He loved it by sending His Son to die. To be lifted up on the cross. The thing God loves the most, and he gave it to you. And he gave it to humanity to spit on, to crucify, to put the crown of thorns into his head. We have no idea what that's like. Maybe Abraham had a, a feeling of it when he took Isaac up the mountain to, to kill him until God stopped him. Maybe Abraham had an idea of that idea of, I'm going to have to sacrifice my son in this moment. Maybe he felt it. I doubt any of us have gotten close to that. But God did it because he loves the world. Boy, I've said a lot about that. That took too much time. Uh, number two, but it was worth it, right? Number two, um, God loves not only his chosen people, Israel, but every single sinful human being. Now, when we read John 3.16, this is how it feels to us. At least... I don't know about us. This is how it feels to me. God so loved the world. And I think big, big world. Everybody, big world. But when John uses the word world, he usually uses it in a way that, that shows its badness more than its bigness. Does that make sense? The word is cosmos. And I'll show you one of them. I'll show you John 7, 7. I tried to stay in John as much as I could because John explains himself really well throughout his own book, obviously. Um, verse John 7, 7 says, The world cannot hate you, uh, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. The world hates me, Jesus said. Later Jesus will say, I'll do fifteen nineteen. It's, it's, it's another good one. Uh, fifteen nineteen. Where is it? Um, verse 18 says, If the world hates you, Keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. So the idea is, when Jesus talks about world, usually what he means is, not like 
the whole wide world, like what we think when we hear the word world, Jesus is meaning the world is so bad and it hates Christians. It's so anti-God. It's so in love with sin. It's so hopelessly addicted to sin. But I love it. I love those people who are sinful. That's John 3.16. I love all of those messed up, perverse people. I love them. That's John 3.16. Every single one of them I love. Now we'll talk about the wrath of God in a moment, but God loves the world. Uh, B. Um, unlimited atonement. So... Um, we said God loves the world by sending His Son to be lifted up. I'll just tell you my view really quick on this uh, because this connects to the world. Um, sometimes the question comes up, when Jesus died on the cross, did He die for the sins of everybody or only the sins of Christians? My view, and you don't have to have this view because a lot of people believe it's a limited atonement. He only died for Christians. Jesus knew who was going to believe in him, and he only died for them. I don't hold that view. Uh, I believe scripturally he died for the sins of everybody. And you look at 1 John 2.2. 2. We'll do that very quickly. 1 John 2.2, 2, you know this one. Um, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. By the way, when Jesus says... Uh, the whole world, or when God says the whole world in 1 John 2 2, that one is whole world. It's like how big the world is. Because the word whole is in front of it, it's an adjective. The whole world. He died for the sins of the whole world. So, um, and then you, look, you can look at 2 Peter 2 1 on your own time, but um, uh, th- there's good evidence to say when we read the word world, we're not just talking about Christians in the world. In fact, I don't think it makes as much sense to read the word world and go, oh, that's Christians. I believe it makes much more sense to say he died for everybody. So you can talk to people and you can say to people, Jesus died for you. And that's completely true. He died to forgive your sins. Completely true. And the question is, do you accept it? Do you accept the gift? Because you can reject it and then you can pay for your own sins. But... God would rather you accept the forgiveness that he already paid for you for. He bought you. By the way, that's 2 Peter 2.1. It says, um, it talks about false teachers and, and, and they introduce dis- destructive heresies and they're going to perish. But then it says, they deny the Lord that bought them. They deny the Lord that bought them. Jesus bought even the, the people who reject him. He bought them. Um, so, in conclusion to that whole thing, uh, part C is, God offers salvation to everybody. Everybody. The offer is good for whosoever. That's the beautiful King James word that's used there. It's a little word in Greek, actually. It says pas. P-A-S. Pas. It means everybody. Everybody. And King James goes, whosoever. And I love that. Whosoever. Anybody can accept this. It's open for all. Okay. Um, let's do number three. So, the purpose of God's love, that's the in order that part of John 3.16, 
the purpose of God's love is to grant eternal life to the believer. The purpose of God's love for the world is ultimately to take a group of people who believe in Him and say, you get eternal life. Eternal life, um, if you want to think about what does eternal life mean, it's not referring to just uh, length. We think eternal, we think long time, never ending. Totally true, never ending. But it's also about quality. It's about the quality of that life. Um, Jim, can you go to part C? So you say, well, what is eternal life? When you say it's a quality, something that does something to my life, what are you talking about? And in the book of John, over and over what we see is that light is life. Or life maybe is light, however you want to say that. But, but when someone says, what does it mean to have eternal life? John 3.16, what does it mean to have eternal life? That must mean heaven, and yes, it does. It does mean heaven. But if you want a really biblical, John-focused, Gospel of John-focused answer to what is eternal life, this is eternal life. Light. Light. So, you know how um, Genesis chapter 1, the first thing God says when he creates is, let there be light. Right? You've done that when you flip the light switch on sometimes, right? You acted like you were God. You shouldn't have, but you said, let there be light. (laughs) I know you have. Or, if you're one of those dads that's a penny pincher, let there be darkness. Click. You forgot to turn the light off. (laughs) Um, yes, I'm like that. Uh, but if you look at John, um, we're still in John 3, 18. Da-da-da. Oh, well, John 1, 19. When you read, whenever you read John 1, you get the feeling John 1 is trying to repeat creation, but through Jesus, right? In the beginning was the Word. That sounds like Genesis 1, right? And then you get to um, verse 19. Did I say 19? I might have picked the wrong one there. I totally picked the wrong one there. But, um, yeah. Nine. Sorry. There we go. There we go. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. That's why we light the Advent candle. It's light. It's getting brighter. And God said, let there be light. In John 1, God said, I'm sending my light into the world so you can have it. That's Jesus. Now you go to John 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. And then you look at verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. But... Men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what he has done has been done through God. You know what this means? I mean, sometimes we think, why would anyone reject John 3.16? Why? Eternal life for free for you? Why would you say no to that? Well, because eternal life is about light. So follow me here. Life is about light, and people love darkness. That's why they don't want eternal life. I mean, you can actually, 
I wouldn't say this to somebody, but you can make an argument that people don't want heaven because it's light. It's light. There's no sun there, Revelation says. Jesus. So, light. But if you love sin, then you love darkness. You love the night. Your deeds are like the night. And you won't go into the light. You won't accept the eternal life. That's the problem. And that's why we pray that people will have the blinders taken off so they'll go into the light. So, um, can I summarize that light thing? If I was going to describe light in two ways, I guess I'd say this. It's about good works. When, when you get eternal life, you're, all your sins get forgiven, and now God releases you to do good works through Him. We are God's workmanship, right? And, and then light's also about uh, knowledge. You now have the knowledge of God. Light is about, like, I've seen the light, you know? And, and what we mean by that is I understand something I didn't, I didn't know before. So, so light is about knowledge. And I've, given you, I've given you other verses. You can look those up too and, and kind of think about that light theme. But light is about moral works and knowledge of God. To know Him and to obey Him. That's being in the light. According to John, that is. Um, all right. Um, you can do B. We'll just do B really quick. Um, when it says have eternal life, it's present tense. It starts now. Part of that light, I know eternally the light is in heaven and there's going to be no sun there, but right now, the eternal life starts now and lasts forever. You get some of it even right now. And I think you all know that, but just the, the, the verb tense even agrees with that. It's present tense. The eternal life is here now. Okay. Uh Number three, number four, uh, God's love, then finally, we'll say this lastly, God's love is the solution to human perishing, typo. God's love is the solution to human, that's worse than the Yoda thing. Um, God's love is the solution to human, I can't even spell perishing right, right? That's, I just made fun of that. Uh, human perishing. So, uh, I was thinking about this. God loved the world in this way. He, sent, he gave His only Son. But the Son, by being lifted up, that is the ultimate act of love. That is, God's love made Him send His Son, but God's love is His Son. God is love. Jesus is love. And His sacrifice is love. John brings this out a lot in, uh, in his letter later. When he talks about, you know, this is what love is, that, that Christ sacrificed himself for us, that is love. Um, so, A, let's remind ourselves this. There is a thing called perishing. God is just. So, there is a thing called human perishing. People will perish. People that die apart from God's salvation do get judged and they do go to hell. There's justice there for their sin. But God is also love. And the two of them meet on the cross. God's justice and God's love. I'll take out my wrath on my beloved son. He will pay the price. It's there on the cross. And so B, the cross is the greatest human act of love. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. There's no greater act of love. Jesus did it. That is the greatest act of love. 
Now, sometimes, we got to protect ourselves from this. When it comes to human perishing, God, God's love is that solution for human perishing. And it's not that the Father and the Son were at odds on this whole thing. It's not like the Father, sometimes we read the Old Testament, we think, well, the Father's full of wrath all over the place. The earth opens up and swallows people. Uh, it, wrath, and it is wrath. But, remember, it's God the Father's love for the world. God the Father. And so the Father says, I want to save people. And the Son says, I do too. And the Father says, we're going to send you to do it. And the Son says, I'll go. So part C, the Father and the Son are one in purpose. There was no arm twisting. There was no, Father, don't, don't do this wrathful thing. I'll, I'll go fix it. It wasn't like that. It was the Father saying, I love them and I'm going to send you. And Jesus saying, yes, I'll go. I'll go. And they were united in this thing. The Trinity was all set together to do this saving work in the world. To provide the solution for human perishing. And then uh, lastly, uh, I'll just skip over this a little bit, but just, just this, you shall not perish. Just, just a thought. And it doesn't really fit as well as I wanted it to, but sinners are in the process of perishing. Uh, Paul brings that out really well in 1 Corinthians 1.18. Sometimes we think people are like neutral, you know? Like you don't believe in God? You, 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 don't, you haven't accepted Christ? Well, you must be like neutral and, and we just got to fill you up and, with, and then you'll be like good to go, right? But there's no neutral. I mean, John 3, um, 16, uh, 17, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. So if you don't believe, you're already condemned. You're in the process of perishing. There's no neutrality here. Either you are for God or against Him. Either you've accepted the Son or you haven't. That, that's, that's it. So if you're here this morning and you haven't accepted the Son's forgiveness, He died for you. But if you haven't accepted it, you're in the process of perishing and one day the process will be complete. That is, you will die and you'll be judged by God and then you go to hell. That's ultimate perishing. But God loves you and doesn't want that for you. He'd rather save you. The offer's open. Um, one more thing that this touches on, and I was trying to think through my transitions a little bit here, but I think it is a John 3.16 centered idea. Um, some of you follow the news, and in, uh, in, at Wheaton College this week, there's been a lot of hubbub about a professor that um, said that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Uh, this is the quote from her. Uh, the pr- professor Larisha Hawkins says, I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people of the book. And as Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. So she wore a Muslim headscarf, a hijab, I think I'm saying that right, to, to show her solidarity with Muslims. I don't have trouble with that. I have trouble with saying we worship the same God. And so I... I guess I'm just bothered, I, I, and nobody here is talking like this but I've, that, that I've heard at least, but I've got a lot of friends that have gone to different Christian universities. And, uh, and right now, by the way, right now she's on uh, administrative leave because Wheaton College has said, I don't, I don't think that fits where we're at with our statement of faith. 
And I think Wheaton's doing all the right things here to deal with this. But I've seen a lot of my friends I've had through the years writing about this and saying, what is the big deal? This is wrong. Wheaton shouldn't do that. She should be reinstated. Um, And that just troubles me because it's like, my friends, are they call themselves evangelicals. They call themselves people who submit to the authority of the Word of God. And yet they're saying, we worship the same God as Muslims. And then they get into the semantics. Well, they call him Allah. And that's just an Arabic word, you know, so don't get hung up on the... I'm not talking about semantics. I'm talking about truth. And so I want to... I'm troubled by it. And maybe for most of you here, this is just an easy one. But I want to make it easier for you. I would open to John 8 and say, this is the truth of God. Would you open to John 8? Jesus actually dealt with this very thing. Jesus is talking to the Jewish people, and he's presenting himself and his teaching as straight from God. Straight from God. And the Jewish people, some of them are beginning to believe him, but some of them don't believe him. And they start having this conversation, and the Jewish people start saying things like, we're Abraham's children. That's who we are. Which I think is very interesting. So if you look at verse 39, Abraham is our father. You ought to read the whole thing, by the way, sometime, but I'll pick it up in verse 39. Abraham is our father. Do you know how profound that is? Do you know where Islam started, where Judaism started, and where Christianity started? Abraham. Abraham. I will grant Muslims this. They think they are trying, they're, they're trying to worship the God of Abraham. I will give them that. They believe they are worshiping the God of Abraham. I'll, I'll gladly grant that. And so did the Jewish people in this passage. Check out the rest. Jesus says, if you were, this is verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. He means like be a man of faith, believe God. As it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do such things. You're doing the things your own father does. Now it's like, ooh, who's your father? We'll get there. We're not illegitimate children, they protested, which makes you wonder, were they calling Jesus an illegitimate child? The only father we have is God himself. Our father is God. And Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. There's John 3.16. He sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. Now, I'm not saying this. Jesus is saying this. So if you think it's mean, Jesus said it. You have to deal with yourself on that. And you carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus is like, you want to kill me? The devil's a murderer. He gets that whole thing. Not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is you do not belong to God. And there it is. You do not belong to God. And the Jewish people say, we are Abraham's children. We have God as our father. 
And Jesus says, no, you don't. You have a father and he's the devil. And furthermore, you don't hear my words. You don't believe them because you don't belong to God. Do you know what he was saying to them? You grow up memorizing Torah. You grow up offering sacrifices to Yahweh. But you don't belong to God. Huge insult. Uh, look at verse 48. The Jews, it gets worse. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying you're a Samaritan and demon possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there's one who seeks it. And he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim, claim, as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, do not know who, don't know God. Though you do not know God, I know Him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know Him and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And that kind of made them furious. Because he's claiming to be, I am, Yahweh, the great I am. And they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And I just can't get over that Jesus already addressed this issue. This is an old thing. This goes back to when Jesus was sent and, and the Jews said, we're Abraham's kids. That's what Muslims say. And we worship Abraham's God. And that's what Muslims say. They say the same things. And Jesus says, no, actually, your father is the devil and you don't belong to God because you don't accept me. And here's the hinge then. If you don't accept Jesus, you do not worship God. That's it. I, I can't get clearer than the book. I can't do it. Um, <clears throat> maybe this will help you then. I heard someone say this this week and I thought it was a beautiful way, to, a brilliant way to say it. You know how we always say Jesus is God? And we, we, like try to, we, we prove that he's God from the Bible. There, there's all sorts of proofs that Jesus is God in this book. Flip the wording around, though. God is Jesus. Right? God is Jesus. And now this professor and the Pope and many others are saying Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And I say, and the Bible agrees, God is Jesus. So Muslims, do you worship Jesus? No, then you don't worship God. I can't get more logical than that. The Bible can't get more clear than that. So then I back up and say, Wheaton, you're, so far as doing everything right to deal with this, this is false, this is error, this comes from Satan, according to Christ. And I stand in support of that. And here's where the twist comes for us. Do you have love in your heart the way God has love in his heart 
for Muslims who are dying and going to hell? That's the question for us. I mean, this should just be clear because Jesus already dealt with it. But the hard issue is when I hear those things, I get ramped up at Christians because they should know better. But I want all of my compassion to be worked up for lost people who think they're worshiping the true God, but Satan has deluded them. He's deluded them. Do you pray for them? Recently, the um, Vatican came out saying that uh, you don't need to evangelize Jewish people. Do you pray for your Jew- the Jewish people that don't know Christ? We've got to do that. We've got to talk to them. We've got to have our hearts open to them. I'm not talking about immigration and refugees. You know, we could talk about that. That's not my point this morning, though. Do you have love in your heart for the Muslim brother or sister that is hopelessly lost without Christ? Because that's where they're at. They've missed the greatest gift of all, and you have it. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes now? Um, If this is you, and you're saying,